what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Kids, what is one of your greatest fears? Maybe feel free to write that down. Maybe you're afraid, you're writing down, you're afraid of spiders, snakes, being bitten by a dog, sitting alone in the cafeteria, having no one to talk to at lunch. Maybe it's something that keeps you up at night, fear like maybe even the death of your parents. Adults, what about us? What are you afraid of? Now, kids tend to do a better job than us of being honest about their fears. We tend to go through life pretending that we are not afraid, but we all are. Adults, don't let the kids show you up. Don't be afraid to write down maybe something that you are afraid of. And whether you're afraid of small rodents, climate change, or Christians, I don't know if I'm going to have the silver bullet for your fear today, but my prayer is that as we encounter God and His Word, that we will see because of who He is and what He has done, that you don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to live in the fear of unbelief. Which brings us to our text to this week's sermon in the Gospel of Mark. I'd invite you to even be turning there now. You can find the Gospel of Mark on page 891 in the Black Pew Bibles uh, in front of you, in the pews and the chairs. After a one-week hiatus, we are back in the sermon series, Amazed and Confused in the Presence of Jesus. Some of you will be amazed and confused as you look at your bulletins that we're seeking to cover so much text in one sermon. What am I thinking? Uh, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. Uh, some of you may think it's no big deal that we're covering this much text, but I've heard from a number of you, like, why are you doing this? Which is a, a long answer. Just in brief, though, I want to I stand on God's Word here of uh, why we would preach so many stories. Each of those stories could is well more than enough for one sermon, but uh, I want to just give you two examples from Scripture of sermons covering a lot of territory. One, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's 13 chapters. There's a lot in there. Two, uh, in Acts 8, 7, 8, Stephen preaches a sermon that covers several books of the Old Testament in one sermon. Uh, now, at the end of that sermon, Stephen got killed, so I hope <laughs> you will have a different response to me as I cover merely about two chapters from the Gospel of Mark. But there is a lot in there, and I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, uh, so you're going to be helped if you have your Bible open because we're going to be flying through a number of well-known, kind of iconic stories for many of us in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, you'll be helped to keep your Bibles open as we will not read a lot of text this morning. I will be summarizing and pointing us to key places in the text. Well, in Mark 4 through 6, we're going to see Jesus do what only God Himself can do. We're going to see Jesus calm a storm, cast out demons, heal a suffering woman, raise a little girl from the dead, feed 5,000 people, much and much more. And as we consider Jesus and His mighty works 
today, I pray that you will see that you don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Why? Well, because of Jesus. Jesus, his, his power for you, his rejection for you, and his identity revealed to you. Those, that's why we don't need to be afraid anymore. Again, let's look at Mark chapter 4. First, his power for you. Jesus' power for us is why we don't need to be afraid anymore. We'll look at chapter 4, verse 35 through the entire chapter 5. You know, earlier, a couple weeks ago, we considered how uh, Jesus' parables. Um, we heard Jesus teach us. But here, in the rest of Mark 4 and all of Mark 5, we see him not only use words, but to work powerfully in desperate situations. So we're going to consider here in this, just in this first point, four terrifying scenes and Jesus standing in the eye of the storm bringing peace. So first we're going to consider the literal storm in Mark 4, 35 through 41. Interesting that our, sermon, our whole sermon uh, begins and ends with Jesus and the disciples on a frightening sea, here in 435 and then in uh, chapter 6. Here in Mark 4, the disciples in the storm think they're going to die. They think this is the end. This is how it's going to go down. They're going down in this boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they don't think that Jesus even cares. They sarcastically ask Jesus in I think sarcasm, desperation, and fear. Verse 38, 438, what did they say? Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Because Jesus doesn't seem affected by the storm. He's, he's literally taking a power nap on a cushion in the middle of the storm. But then Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind in verse 39 in a similar way that he has rebuked unclean spirits, demons, and people earlier in Mark's gospel. And he speaks to the sea as if it's one of his unruly children. Silence, be still. And the wind and the waves immediately obey. You know, as you, as you look at this incredible story in Mark 4, Notice the questions that are asked. Questions are key. You know, after Jesus calms the wind and the waves, he asked his disciples two questions that I think we should consider in the midst of our fear that we face in life. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, to that first question, why are you afraid? I mean, it's, it seems obvious, right? I mean, the disciples think they're going to die. Some would argue that that's the root of all our fears, fear of death. It seemed like the disciples had good reason to be afraid, but Jesus didn't think so. The disciples should have known better after all they had seen Jesus do. That's why he asked them, second, do you still, do you still have no faith? 
You know, in these two questions, before we move on to the next miracle, I want you to see how Jesus juxtaposes fear and faith. Fear is rooted in unbelief. Unbelief thinks that God either can't help us or He could, but He won't. That's what unbelief thinks. We tend to think that He can't help us because in our unbelief, we think our problems are bigger than God. So that's one form of unbelief, right? We think our problems are too big for God. Or in our unbelief, we think that He is merely indifferent to our plight. Isn't that what's behind the disciples' question to Jesus as He takes His power nap in verse 38? Don't you care? But in this story, we see that we're wrong on both accounts. Unbelief is wrong. Jesus can help, and He does help. Maybe not how we'd like, maybe not on our timetable, but perhaps, perhaps the one who rules the wind and the waves is wiser, stronger, and more concerned for us than we give him credit for. Let's move on to our second terrifying scene in Mark 5.1. We've moved from a storm that rages outside to a storm that rages inside one man. This man's gone bananas. He listened to the power of this demon-possessed man, consider his agony and his suffering. I'm going to read Mark 5, 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he, that's Jesus, got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. And no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been found with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Considering how this man was acting, how, how terribly powerful he was. I wonder how long it had been since someone had talked to this poor man as if he was a human being made in God's image. Well, Jesus does. Jesus speaks to him. Look at verse 9, what he asks the suffering man. What is your name? What is your name? Well, the demons speak for the man, identifying themselves as not just as one unclean spirit, but many, a legion. A legion in a Roman garrison was between 5,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So we have perhaps that many demons making this man's life a living hell. But with the word, Jesus commands the legion to come out of this man, and immediately he's restored to his right mind. Jesus rebukes the legion just as he had rebuked the storm, and the storm and the demons obey immediately. 
The camera then will focus on later in the story on the people of the town who have seen this demon-possessed, uh, see the demon-possessed pigs uh, in their livelihood, you know, plummet off a cliff. And what does the text say in verse 15, chapter 5, verse 15? They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. After Jesus brings peace out of chaos, the people are afraid. And what do the people of this Gentile region do with their fear? Verse 17, then they began to beg him to leave their region. You know, I'm sure there's many reasons why they wanted Jesus to, to leave. First of all, the pigs. I mean, they had liver, literally seen their livelihood go down the drain. But it, it's their fear, their fear perhaps of loss of income, their fear of how Jesus might disrupt their lives. The people in this Gentile region did not want this kind of power in their midst, too disruptive, too terrifying. I wonder about us. Do we want this kind of power in our midst, even if it would mean a loss of control, disrupt our livelihood, our financial security that we've been building up for ourselves? Well, so far, just in these two stories, We've seen that fear can cause us to lose faith. Fear is rooted in unbelief, and fear, at least in this story, can ask us to ask Jesus, fear can cause us to ask Jesus to leave. We want some distance from this guy, for we would prefer to live with the familiar fears that often plague us, that seem to be more manageable, under our control then face a power that is literally out of this world. We prefer these fears to that fear. But friends, the power that we've seen in these first two stories is the kind of power that we need. It's the kind of otherworldly power that we so desperately need, and that's what we're going to see in Scenes three and four, which are intertwined here at the, in the rest of Mark 5. When Jesus crosses over to the other side of the lake, he encounters two desperate people who couldn't be more different from one another. The story picks up, I think, in chapter 5, verse 22. First, we have Jairus, all right? Jairus, he's one of the synagogue rulers in the area. He's, he's known by name, uh, perhaps even to Mark's first readers, you know, these, these things were written down just 30 years after they took place. So perhaps people who are reading this, they're like, oh, yeah, we know Jairus' kids or something like that. Jairus had a family. He's well off. He's well respected in the area. But Jairus isn't the only one who's seeking Jesus. In contrast to Jairus is a nameless woman who was an outcast. She's introduced in chapter 5, verse 25. Do you see her? She's unclean, 
She's unable to touch others or be touched because she had suffered from this hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. According to Jewish law, as we considered with leprosy back in chapter 1, unable to worship in the synagogue, unable to worship in the temple. Likely, many people in that time would have assumed that this woman was under God's judgment, this woman was under God's judgment uh, because of her affliction. So, we have a respected man, outcast woman, couldn't be more different, and yet they're the same because they're both living in fear. Both are helpless because in Mark 5, 23, we learn that Jairus' little 12-year-old girl is dying. But before Jesus can go with Jairus to his little daughter, this suffering woman, this outcast, reaches out to touch Jesus' clothing, thinking that that might heal her. It's not the most rational thing that she could have done, but consider her plight. She was desperate. She had tried everything. And what happens when she touches Jesus' cloak? Mark 5, 29, instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. You know, Jesus wasn't content, though, merely to just meet, meet her need and move along. You know, he's got other things, important things to do. No, he wants a personal encounter with this woman. This is, he had a personal encounter with the man who had the legion. Jesus stops the chaotic crowd. He asks to touch him. And the woman comes with fear and trembling. And like Jairus earlier, like the demon-possessed man, she falls down before him. And she tells Jesus what she's done. Does Jesus rebuke this bold woman for what she's done? No. Mark 5, 34. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. You know, as, as Jesus speaks these tender words to this woman, Jairus receives the report now that now, in fact, his, his little daughter has died. They've already hired the mourners. But how does, how does Jesus speak to Jairus when, when Jairus hears this news that is every parent's like worst fear? How does he speak to Jairus in this, this nightmare that Jairus finds himself living in? Verse 36, don't be afraid, only believe. And then listen to what Jesus does. Jesus goes to where the child lay, Mark 5, 41. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. The woman had suffered for 12 years under this horrible affliction as an outcast and in pain. This little girl was 12 years old, and for the woman, for that woman, and for this girl, a mere touch from Jesus made them whole. A mere touch. Four scenes 
of desperate helplessness. People unable to do for themselves what they are so desperate for. Four scenes filled with fear, fear of death, fear of power, fear of chronic suffering, fear of losing a loved one. And four examples of Jesus doing what only God can do, calming the sea, casting out demons, healing an incurable illness, and raising the dead. This is why Jesus asks his disciples in the boat back in chapter 4, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is why Jesus can say to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. And if you take nothing away, else away from all these stories, perhaps chapter 5, verse 34 would be a good verse to meditate on. Jesus says to this woman with the affliction who has fallen before him, this is, this is the picture of faith that I want you to see, and he says to her, daughter. He identifies with her. Jesus speaks to this woman with affliction, with affection, and identifies with her. He's pleased with her. Just as the father was pleased with his beloved son and said, this is my beloved son, Jesus calls this woman who had suffered for so long, who is an outcast, as we sang earlier, who must have felt like an orphan. He calls her daughter. And then he says, your faith has saved you. You know, this is in contrast to the disciples in the boat. They had felt like Jesus didn't care or that he was unable. People in the garrisons in their fear, the people in the Gentile region with the unclean man with the unclean spirit, they had begged Jesus in their fear to leave. But this woman, in the face of her fear, She felt afraid to come back to Jesus and to fall before him. But in the face of that fear, she courageously, faithfully, against all hope, drew near to Jesus. And friends, that's what faith does. That's what faith does. It draws near to Christ despite how we're feeling. You know, fear from the very beginning in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against God, they hide And why does the text tell us they hide? Because they were afraid and their unbelief. But faith draws back near to Christ. Faith is the open hand reaching out in desperation for the power that we so desperately need and that we do not have. Finally, Jesus says to this woman, go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Christ alone is the one who can bring peace in the midst of our fear. He's the one who can bring healing and salvation. So the answer to our fears does not lie within. The answer is in this man that we are encountering. He alone has the power to tell us that we don't need to be afraid anymore, that we can go in peace because the Lord has come. Because of Jesus' power for you, he doesn't just command us to feel a certain way, like, you know, don't feel afraid. No, that's not what he's saying. He calls us to reach out to him, to orient ourselves towards him as we fight for faith in the midst of our fears. It's easier said than done, right? (laughs) It is easier said than done. 
You know, just to illustrate this, it reminds me of uh, the a classic story of the most famous tightrope walker of all time. Do you know the story of Charles uh, Blondin in the 19th century? This was the guy, the tightrope walker, who would often cross Niagara Falls on a wire. And, I mean, he was so good, he could, like, do, do flips and land on that wire. He'd, like, push things across, carry someone on his back across Niagara Falls. Um, there was one, you know, the crowd would gather at Niagara Falls, and they would ooh and awe at his, uh, at his feats. And uh, there, was, there was one time, as the story goes, where he said, you know, who believes I can... Uh, I can push this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on this wire. They're like, yeah, you can do it. You can do it, Blondin. You can do it. And one guy was like, yeah, I believe you can do it. Blondin calls him out. He's like, okay, you get in the wheelbarrow then. <laughs> you know, that, that guy's like, quickly, oh, well, no, that's okay. In fear, it's one thing to say that you believe. It's another thing to have your faith overcome your fear. So how does faith in Jesus overcome our fears? we got to be desperate like these people. we got to recognize that we cannot fix our problem of fear. That it's not safe to stay on the ground anymore. we we got to get in the wheelbarrow despite our fears. We have no other choice. Only this man can carry us to safety. Because this, isn't this a world filled with danger? We pretend that it isn't. And the number one danger is that we would think that we can trust ourselves, we can look to our own control, that we can manage the storms of life, the sickness, and the spiritual darkness, and even death. That we would be trying one technique or method or leader to follow after another, but we cannot stand in the face of this danger. Well, we can pretend that, it, that like death is a long ways off. We can try all the treatments that are out there. We, we, with all our advances, though, with all our technology, with all the information that we have, we are helpless to a world that's under the shadow of death. Jesus is telling us today, you're not in control. You can't be but there's someone who is, and that's a good thing. You know, we we can't control our own families or ourselves, much less everything, the storm, sickness, death. But we can trust that Jesus is able and He's willing. Faith in Jesus alone saves. He alone brings the peace in our fear that we need, He alone can heal us, if not in this life, in the next. So we don't need to be afraid anymore because Jesus is powerful and he uses that power for our good. He knows our fears and he calls us to believe that he alone can bring the help that we so desperately need. And the way he showed that most fully was in the cross. That's the second reason that we don't need to be afraid anymore because, too, his rejection for you. You know, after Mark records four mighty miracles of Jesus, Jesus returns home in Mark 6.1. And Jesus doesn't really get the homecoming like the parade that he, you know, maybe that we would expect him to get. The people of Nazareth are like, who does this guy think he is? Look at there at the beginning of chapter 6. You know, 
We, we've known this little Jesus since he was, he was young. We know his family. Isn't this just the carpenter? And then look at Mark 6, 3, the conclusion, like, they're offended by him. There at the end of chapter 6, verse 3, his own people are offended by Jesus. Skip down to 6, 6. Now it's Jesus' turn to be amazed in the presence of his own people. He's amazed that they would reject him and his message like this. And so he does very little miracles there. You know, miracles were always for the benefit of those who had faith. Jesus finds very little faith in his hometown. Instead, he finds unbelief. This is what unbelief does. Skeptical of Jesus, doubts him, stands in judgment over him, doubts his power, questions his identity, and pushes him away, seeking to manage things according to our own sensibilities and reason. It isn't desperate for help because it's looking for help within. That's what unbelief does. This, this rejection that we see here at the beginning of Mark chapter 6 is consistent with what we see in, in John 1, 10, and 11. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I think right here in this scene here at Nazareth in Jesus' hometown, it's a good warning for all of us, but maybe particularly for, for the kids here today. Kids, I know what it's like to grow up in the church and know all these Bible stories, have, you know, even, even little arts and crafts to do with them, to memorize God's Word. But familiarity with Jesus and His Word does not guarantee trust in Him, belief in Him. Jesus' friends and family knew who He was. I mean, I'm sure they had stories about Him. But it doesn't guarantee, familiarity, again, does not guarantee belief. True belief repents. True belief turns from our doubts, from our own wisdom, rather than seeking worldly wisdom that's ruled by fear. It entrusts our fears and our whole lives to Jesus. So kids, ask God to help you, not just know about Jesus, but to know Him and be known by Him and entrust yourself and your whole life to Him. What we see happen to Jesus in, in the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, uh, continues in uh, chapter 6, start this theme of rejection. Starting in chapter 6, verse 7, we see two stories now intertwined with one another, as Mark often loves to do. Um, he, Mark did the same thing. I don't know if you noticed back in uh, Mark 5. You had the story of the woman with the affliction of hemorrhaging blood and Jairus and his daughter. Those stories were intertwined, um, and we, we like to think of these as a good, good sandwich. Uh, I won't make another Lardo reference, but the, the meat of the, of the sandwich is, is kind of the lesson for us inside. So here in Mark 6, the pieces of bread, uh, what's on the outside, are the disciples in their short-term mission trip, all right? So 6, 7 through 13, the, Jesus sends the disciples out, and then in verse 30 through 31, they return, all right? So that's the bread. But in the middle, the lesson for us is this kind of strange story about John the Baptist getting his head cut off in 29 
Uh, I'm sorry, in 14 through 29. We're going to come back to the bread. Let's get to the meat right away. Let's figure out what we're eating. It's Herod's birthday party, Mark 6, 21. Herod's stepdaughter does this little dance that causes Herod, the, the ruler over the area, to make a foolish, probably drunken promise. Hey, you can have whatever you want for that. And so she consults with her mother, and the request comes back naturally for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Okay, we're, that's a very strange and violent request. Uh, the background is f- verses 14 through 20. Why would Herod's stepdaughter ask for such a horrible thing? She could have whatever she wanted, according to Herod. Well, just to summarize verses 14 through 20, basically Herodias's, Herodias, Herod's new wife, hated John the Baptist because he called her husband, her new husband, out for taking uh, his brother's wife. So he betrayed his brother-in-law, took his brother's wife, which was against the law. And John the Baptist called him out. He wasn't, John the Baptist wasn't afraid. He's speaking truth to power, and it lands John in prison. Then it lands his head on a platter because of this cocktail wager, so to speak. You know, this rather bloody and bizarre scene to us today uh, becomes actually quite relatable, though, in verses 25 through 27. I think we can relate to Herod in these short verses, as Mark, as he so rarely does, kind of zooms in on what's going on in Herod's heart. King Herod is deeply distressed by this request. He kind of liked to listen to John, even though he was too afraid to actually turn and, like, listen to him. So, King Herod, instead of doing what's right, instead of fearing God, like, he knew he shouldn't do this. He feared his guests. He didn't want to look weak. He didn't want to change his mind. That's what repentance is, a change, turn. Fear caused Herod to have John arrested, maybe under pressure from his new wife, Caves. Didn't want to hear that he was in the wrong, that he was doing something immoral. And then it's fear that leads to the execution of this righteous man. Fear of man is never a victimless crime. When we refuse to repent, we, we bear the cost. We, we bear the shame, the judgment, but also others are left in the wake. If you fear people, you cannot love them. So, who might be suffering at the hands of your fear of man and your fear and your pride that's rooted in unbelief? Who in your life might be picking up the pieces because you are too proud to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry? We, We all need help. We all want to hide in the midst of our fear. So would you ask someone to help you? Maybe it's in your your marriage or in your relationship with your kids or with your parents or with friends, your boss. We can no longer pretend. We need help if we're going to live lives marked by humility and repentance. 
You know, John preached that message. That's how Mark summarizes John's message in Mark 1. John preached a message of repentance, and it got him killed. Jesus comes also preaching a message of repentance. Remember Mark 1, 14 and 15? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, it's not surprising to us then when Jesus sends out the 12, the disciples, that Mark summarizes that the message that they're preaching as they go out on this, on this short-term mission trip is one of repentance. So, again, we're, we're going to turn from the meat. We looked at the story of John the Baptist. Now we're going to the bread and the first piece, the, the first piece of bread in 7 through 13. We see in Mark 6, 12, the disciples are preaching this message of repentance, but Jesus prepares them that this isn't going to be a popular message. It's not always going to be received. That's what he tells them in verse 11. He says people are going to reject this message of repentance, and, and in response, the disciples are to shake the dust off their feet to those who reject them. Uh, what, what's going on there? Uh, that's, a, that's a symbol that these people would be held accountable for the message that they had rejected. So, in summary, chapter 6, 1 through 30, what's going on? We see rejection of Christ and His message. But what do these stories have to do with us today? I mean, you have John the Baptist's head on a platter. You have people shaking dust off their feet. It seems like another world. But we all know what it means to reject the message to repent. And I want to speak in particular to those who might be joining us today. We're, we're so glad you are here today if you do not understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, maybe for the first time, to face your fears and listen to this message of good news and consider what it might mean for you today to repent and believe in this message that Jesus has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, you might say, well, I haven't seen Jesus calm any storms or bring healing. But in the death of John the Baptist, we see a preview of the healing and the power that we need most. For God, in His wisdom, used rejection to bring about the greatest healing the world has ever known. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by preaching the truth and a message of repentance, but his death also prepared the way for Jesus' death. And that rejection of Jesus becomes the means of our salvation, of our acceptance into the kingdom of God, if you believe that Jesus was rejected for you, for your sin of unbelief, for your pride, from your, for your hiding, you will know God's acceptance and that Jesus will never cast you out, that He speaks to you as a son, as a daughter. Because God on the cross, God the Father rejected the Son so that we never need to fear rejection from the greatest authority in the world, the one who rules the wind and the waves and everything that there is. 
You know, John would go to the tomb for his proclamation of the truth, but Jesus came out of the tomb and proclaimed eternal life for all who would trust in him. So friends, you don't have to be afraid anymore because Jesus was despised and rejected for you. And finally, we see in our text this morning and much more briefly that we don't have to be afraid because Jesus reveals himself to us. And that's that's also good news for people like us who are so often ruled by our fear. So let's consider three, Christ's identity, his identity revealed to you. Here in this final point, we're going to see how the answer to our fear is not just what Jesus does, but it's who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. Look with me at Mark 6.34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark here tells us of Jesus' heart for the lost, uh, those without purpose, those who were hurting, hungry, and those who were afraid. But we're not merely seeing Christ's heart in chapter 6, verse 34. We're seeing Christ's identity. Mark phrases chapter 6, verse 34, just so to show us that finally the good shepherd of his people is here. God had promised that he himself was going to come and be the shepherd that his people needed and bring rest and justice. We read of this, Erica led us earlier in reading from the book of Numbers. But Joshua wasn't the final answer. You can, you can read more about after, how after all of Israel's kings have failed being that shepherd who selflessly cares for God's people, God is like, I'm going to come do it, Ezekiel 34. I'm going to come be that shepherd that my people need. I think perhaps this is why Mark notes in verse 39 that Jesus, as he looked out on the crowd, instructs the crowd to sit down in the green grass. Here's the good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures, Psalm 23. And Jesus isn't merely Yahweh, the good shepherd. He is Yahweh, the great host, the host of heaven. Like God provided for his people in the wilderness after the exodus with manna from heaven, here's Jesus doing what only God can do feeding thousands from five loaves and two fish. It's a a miracle that all four Gospels record. And it's because, not that it's so unbelievable that Jesus could do such a miracle, but because Jesus is showing us who He is. He's preparing a table before us, and our cup overflows, 12 baskets left over. You know, after Jesus feeds the masses, and has revealed himself as the good shepherd and the great host. He dismisses his disciples. He tells them to get in the boat, row away. And look at 6, verse 45. Then we have this strange scene, this language of Jesus walking on the waves, but trying to pass by. You know, when you first read that, it's like, what's going on there? Is he trying to, like, you know, sneak by, like Pink Panther style, like, you know, without the disciples seeing him? 
No, it's not passing by to be sneaky. He's passing by to reveal his glory, the glory of the one and only. Just as God's glory passed by Moses in Exodus 33, this is echoing the words of Job and Job 9. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. That's Job 9. This is God doing what God alone can do. He treads on the waves of the sea. He passes by us, but the disciples, they don't recognize him yet. They can't see him. But we can't. The disciples' hearts were still hardened, as we hear at the end of this text. They're consumed with their fear. The, the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost on the waves. They thought that was more plausible. Oh, it's probably a ghost. And they're scared. So in their terror, they call out. And notice Jesus' response in chapter 6, verse 50. We have Jesus' answer to our fear to the disciples' fear and to our fear. Jesus immediately speaks to them and says, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. In the middle, Jesus tells us, it is I. Who is I? It is I is the same way that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. The great I am was passing by. Here was God himself doing, treading where only God can walk on the waves, doing what only God can do, providing manna from heaven, healing people of affliction that no doctor could address, raising a little girl from the dead, taking on thousands of demons, binding the strong man and plundering his house, rebuking the wind and the waves with a word, according to Psalm 107, stilling the sea, and then he gets back in the boat with the disciples, and the wind ceases, and there's calm. It is I. I am, plain and simple, is the answer to the disciples' question back in Mark 4, when in the after Jesus had stilled the wind and the waves, they asked, who then is this? Jesus tells them. He reveals himself. And because of who he is, because of who's in the boat with the disciples, we too can take courage today. We don't need to be afraid. Today, Jesus has shown us that he is not only able to help us, but that he's willing, that he cares, that he's the good shepherd, that he's compassionate, and he uses his power for our good. Today, we have seen that Jesus was despised and rejected by men so that we don't have to be, so that we don't have to be orphans anymore, but we can know his acceptance. We can know him call us daughter and son. And finally, we have seen the answer to all our fears 
is found in the great I am. Jesus is God. The wind and the waves obey Him. Question is, will you? And we should take courage, for God has come in the person of His Son. He's gotten in the boat with us, and if He is with us, we don't need to be afraid anymore. So what are you afraid of? Let's pray. As we prepare to pray, take a minute and consider what fears you can take to Christ now and know His powerful presence with you by His Spirit. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are afraid. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, we cry, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us in our fear, Father, to like the woman with the affliction, to draw near to your son Jesus. Teach us how to fall on our faces in desperation, to reach our hand out in faith, and to entrust ourselves to you to orient our whole lives around you. So, Father, come and have your way with us. And we thank you that you can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You can draw us near. You can open our eyes. You can unstop our ears. You can soften our hearts. Lord, if the stars are ruled by you, the wind and the waves, we know that you rule our hearts. So help us, Father, to draw near. And we thank you for how you have done that in the gospel of your Son. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.